God, we give you thanks, having sung songs of praise and heard your scripture proclaimed, that we might continue to hear a word from you today. Pray that you would speak to us, that we might be transformed by the words that you have for us to be your love in the world. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Well, this is kind of our last in the series uh, that's following the book. Next week, we'll talk a little bit as we transition into our preparation for our Lenten journey, which is next week's conversation. But today is the end of this book that we've been following through, and we're ending on a high note, so to speak. Blessed are the persecuted. It seems really odd to be talking about this when we've been talking about the good life that Jesus has for us. But at the same time, if you've been following along with our sermons, and if you haven't, we invite you to go back and do it. We have podcasts and videos available to follow along or read the book, uh, The Good Life, to follow along that Jesus is, you know, what he had in mind for the good life doesn't match the way that we would anticipate it. You know, Jesus begins his ministry and he starts a sermon on the mount in the gospel of Matthew, almost all of the essentials. If you want to know what is core for Jesus's theology and teaching that made him a mighty prophet and teacher. You could read the Gospel of Matthew going from chapter 5 about to chapter 8, when Jesus proclaims a series of ways to live. And we followed it for a while, but it's been weird because he talks about blessed are the poor. And then afterwards he says, blessed are the sad. And if you didn't know that blessed in Greek also could be translated into happy or whole. And so he goes on to say, blessed or whole and happy are the merciful. And then also, blessed are those that are peacekeepers. Blessed, happy are the peacekeepers. Jesus has this sort of way of living his life that almost floats by, not in the same way of the pictures that like, you know, he has is a glowing white Jesus that nothing wrong happens, but in so much as it doesn't seem as if the problems of the world weigh as heavy on his heart and burden him than they do for some of us. In fact, for Jesus, he seems to go like full on knowing what's ahead of him, and continues to do it all the same. I don't know when you, last time you like put yourself in a place of fear or anxiety. Um, well, in the book, uh, Dr. Derwin Gray talks about his experience of, you know, being a small fish in like a big pond and going to like high school and college. And so it kind of got me reminiscing about moving from junior high to high school. And I know I'm like a really large in stature right now, but I was much smaller back in junior high. And in fact, I think I grew like a foot. I'm not even sure how much it was, but I have stretch marks to prove it from like the eighth grade to 10th grade window. I like just like shot up, but I was a little guy. And then there I was moving into our big high school. I was in a small town, but our high school was actually relatively large. We had about 1,600 students. And the big sport in our town at the time when I was in school was wrestling, right? And if you didn't know, wrestling has all sorts of 
different classes. And when I went to school, there was this wrestler that was a state champion. He'd been a state champion for like three years, and he was not the like underweight class. He was the heavyweight class, right? And so you, there's this, this giant guy, and there were stories to be told about him, like Goliath from the book, right? David and Goliath. And there's even the story that he could pick up those geo metros. You know what I'm talking about? Those are kind of like literally move it and parallel park it because he was just like that strong. And so we would have to, the one thing about the seniors in the class is that they would all kind of gather on this main part of our high school. It's in Minnesota, so it's all indoor high school. So some of you might not know what that's like, but it's inside. And so you like have everything kind of gathered together. And this is right at the top of the stairs of the cafeteria, right where all the trophies for all the sports <laughs> were lined up. And it was central. So it was really hard to get anywhere on, on the campus without walking through this area. And the greatest fear I had as a little freshman was to be called out by one of the seniors, right, as you're walking by, especially the senior that was like the giant Goliath, right? It was just this fear of being in a space where you know you know that you are the little guy. And if you do anything awkward or wrong, like it could come back to haunt you in a really, really big way, right? That you're the little guy and you're reminded of the, the big Goliath or the giant wrestler that can like take you out. And, and I, I use that analogy and I've been using a number of analogies kind of like this and they seem a little silly, but at the same time for us, we don't have the feeling that the people in antiquity had during Jesus's time, especially a poor Jew living in antiquity. They were all too aware of the Goliaths in their lives. They were all too aware of the fact that they did not have the power and the Roman Empire did. We talk a lot about the chief scribes and the priests and the elders and you know how they had this sort of power that was different and the Pharisees and we can do all that. But all of that was like minuscule in comparison to you know, the power of Rome. Has anyone been watched any of the Star Wars movies, you know, or like the Mandalorian or some of those things? I mean, this is on the outskirts, right? This is where they find Anakin Skywalker sort of outskirts. Like this is in this like, imagine this like poor desert area having nothing to do with the like, you know, people that are in the pompous like circumstance of the main capital city, right? This is on the outskirts of the area and these Jewish people who, you know, try to you know, kind of balance their power amongst themselves. All the meanwhile, like all the while, they know, and everyone knows that if anyone steps out of line, the empire is going to come in. In fact, there's lots of biblical connections to Star Wars and the Bible. If you didn't know, I'm happy to explore it in a small group conversation. But the idea is that when Jesus lives his life, he knows the implications of his words. And if you read the various gospels, they come to light more and more the more you know about the ancient times. And then also, you know, questions like, who am I to pay taxes to, right? Who am I to pay taxes to? Because you have this juxtaposition where the Jews knew that it was really uncomfortable for them to use Roman money. Because at the time, it wasn't like, you know, everyone was using the same currency all the time. But you would have to use Roman money at some points. But Roman coins all had an inscription stamped upon it 
And that inscription says, Caesar is divine. Caesar is divine. Caesar is God. And so it was a strong controversy amongst those ancient Jews. Is it even faithful for us as believers in Yahweh, one God, to use money that clearly is denoting something else? And Jesus is asked in a public setting, what are you supposed to do? It's hard for us to understate the influence that the Roman Empire had, but also the eyes that they had on all the people. We talk a little bit about this in the weeks to come around Palm Sunday and Easter, but the Roman guards would stand up on the Jerusalem temple and watch what was happening below. Because when people would gather, some of the biggest revolts throughout the empire would begin in these religious settings. They begin to talk and they begin to find confidence in their God, and they begin to rally together to do something about it. And the words of the disciples who had followed Jesus from the Gospel of Luke are so powerful because it emphasizes the point of, their, of what they had expected Jesus to be. But he was the one who we had hoped would redeem Israel. That statement holds so much within it. It holds the hope, the dreams, the expectations of a people living in poverty and oppression for their future. And Jesus shows up and walks along their midst, and the disciples are completely and utterly devastated. But he was the one in whom we had hoped would save us. And this wasn't an ideological saving. This wasn't, he was the one that was going to open the kingdom of heaven for us, so that when we die at the hands of Rome, we will live in paradise. This was a physical hope of their current circumstances. The Messiah was the one in which they hoped all of the oppression that they had faced as a people would be lifted. But he was the one we had hoped would abolish slavery. But he is the one we had hoped that would end sexism and racism. But he is the one we had hoped that no children would go hungry. But he is the one we had placed our hope in. And the strangest thing about it is that Jesus begins his ministry by saying something that they could have anticipated about this. And that's to say, on the Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes, he goes, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. But they, like us, thought Jesus was just talking about going through hard times in life and getting your just reward. Because that's what we think, right? We think that if we can put in the work in life, it's going to pay off. 
There's a, a scholar at Duke, and I've mentioned her name a num- number of times, but her point is just ever so present in this sermon, which is, she, her name is Kate Bowler, and she was, you know, the top, right, teaching professor at Duke, and, you know, she had done all the right things, so of course all the right things should happen, but then she was diagnosed about my last year of grad school with stage four colon cancer, and she was a professor in American Christianity that focused on the prosperity gospel. (laughs) If you don't know what the prosperity gospel, it's the gospel where the pastors stand up and say, hey, if you give more money and pray a little bit harder, God will give you good things in this life. Physical manifestations of those good things will be, you'll have more money in your bank account, you'll get a raise in your job, like you will get the things that you pray for, ask, and it will be received. So she was well aware of the problems within that theology. And if you don't know that there's problems with theology, again, let's talk later. We can talk about Star Wars and the problems of prosperity gospel. But then when she was diagnosed with cancer, recognizing how deeply the belief that if I do good in life and try hard, life is going to go my way really ran within her. And it changed her so much that she wrote a book, Everything Happens for a Reason, and The Other Lies I've Loved. Because we love it. We love that idea, right? That if we do the work and we put in the long hours and we grunt through, that it will end up right. Friends, did you know that Jesus and all but one of the disciples died? at the hands of others. And it's a hard reality to think about. Because blessed are not those who work real hard and they get to inherit all the things that they had hoped. But here's the thing. We think that the the work is kind of like a, a hurdle or something in the way of what the hope of God is for us. Whatever that hope is, you know promotions or the happy relationships or the life we want, or even heaven, for example. One of the most influential theologians for me in my life is named John Howard Yoder. He's a Mennonite theologian. Um, Mennonite is a tradition of kind of the Anabaptist movement. Again, talk more about that another time. He writes a book called The Politics of Jesus. And in the book, The Politics of Jesus, he unfolds some of the harsh realities of living within the Roman Empire and how Jesus' words throughout his time, like the words in the Beatitudes and especially other words throughout the Gospel of Luke, where he talks about the year of the Lord's favor and, you know, the Lord's prayer that we pray every week, forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us is the translation there. And he argues that this was exactly talking about money, friends. That's what he says, that the politics of Jesus was so much that he was talking about the freedom of debt. Because, of course, all of the Jewish people were in debt to the tax collectors and the Roman Empire. And he even talks about how when Jesus begins his journey on Palm Sunday, you know that religious celebration where he's, you know, we're waving our palms, and he's coming into Jerusalem. That when he begins that, he starts in the Mount of Olives, and he prays a prayer, you know, Lord, take this from me. Because he is well aware of one fact when he gets on that colt and rides it into the city. 
that the Roman Empire would be watching and would be anticipating that a sign of treason and rebellion. Parading into the city on a cult like the emperor parades into Rome with praise and honor saying, Hosanna in the highest. And then coming into the temple, remember, where the guards are watching, and goes into the temple and starts creating almost a brawl fight, throwing over the tables and saying, you have created the house of God, or made the house of God into a house of robbers. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so Yoder says that the cross, how Jesus died, was neither a detour or a hurdle on the way to the kingdom. This is a quote. But is the kingdom come? That the cross is neither a detour or a hurdle upon the way to the kingdom, but that the cross is the kingdom come. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Every Sunday, first Sunday of the month, we gather around the table, right? And when we gather around the table, we do something called communion. That's, uh, you know, remembering Jesus's last supper that he had with his disciples. And we have a liturgy every time we do it. And in the liturgy, one of the key components, and when you're trained as a pastor, you got to do this part. Jesus takes the loaf, and he gives it to his disciples. And what's he say? Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then afterwards, he takes the cup, and he gives thanks, and he gives it to the disciples. And you know, you can hear it in your head. What's he say? Take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He was teaching the disciples in that moment the way to be happy. Did you know that? And the way to be happy was what? Giving himself up for others. That Jesus gives himself up, and in giving himself up in the service of others, the kingdom of God is found. The kingdom of God is found not on the aftermath of the hardship or on the journey when we can celebrate. It can be found there. I'm not trying to say that the good things in life are bad things. But the kingdom of God is not the good that we receive. The kingdom of God is found in the heart of serving and giving ourselves to another. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. That in the service of one another, the disciples and Jesus himself lived out the kingdom here on earth as it was in heaven. And the craziest thing about this is that I said the phrase, all of the disciples, all the core ones, the 12, right, died except for one, right? And this was, you know, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And here we are today. In Hawaii. Remembering this man. 
who lived, who died, and some believe was raised from the dead. The power that was in this revolutionary subordination, as John Yoder calls it, of letting the powers that be be and living within them changed the world. But he was the one we had hoped would redeem Israel. And he didn't do it. He didn't pick up the sword. He didn't fight back. He didn't grunt his way through it. Instead, he humbled himself and gave of himself. Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And in so doing, he hoped we would all experience God's kingdom here on earth. And I can tell you story after story of how I've seen that lived out. Whether it's a friend faithfully serving a friend as they begin to deal with the challenges of aging, of memory loss, and sustaining their life. As a friend supporting a friend amidst the loss of a loved one, when it would be much easier to enjoy a day at the beach. How are we called to serve those we love? And not just those we love, but those beyond. Because there, friends, we will find the kingdom of God. Professor once said, Jesus is calling to us from the places on the margins, from the pain, from the suffering, inviting us to come and experience the kingdom. My invitation to us is the same. How might we hear God's call to service and do the same? And in so doing, find the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. I invite you to pray with me. Loving God, as difficult as it is, we give thanks that the hope and the happiness and the fulfillment that comes from your kingdom is not some, something that we must attain far in our future, but that that is available here and now to us. And again, not in the ways that the world will tell us on the Super Bowl commercials later today. But in our call to be like Jesus and to serve our loved ones, to serve our neighbors, and to serve our community and world beyond. And there, as we give of ourselves to one another and to the world, there we will find the happiness, the fulfillment, the blessedness that you call us to. And so we remember that blessed are the poor, blessed are the sad, blessed are the merciful, the peacekeepers, 
Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen.